Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, everyone. Dan Aminder here. On behalf of all of us at Cardiners, we are thrilled to bring you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and for educational purposes only. This series was developed by Cardiners and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellowship with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bizanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance. So join us as we get to learn about the guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. With that said, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to sections 6.1 and 7.3 of the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Keck School of Medicine, USC medical student, and cardio nurse intern, Hirsch Elans. Answered first by Greater Baltimore Medical Center medical resident and Johns Hopkins MPH student, as well as Cardio Nerds Academy fellow, Dr. Ala Diab, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Mark Drasner. Dr. Drasner is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist, professor of medicine, and Clinical Chief of Cardiology at UT Southwestern. He is the president of the Heart Failure Society of America. Dr. Dreisner, welcome back to Cardio Nerds. Thanks. My pleasure to be here. Jason, thanks so much for, for the intro. So our question today is about a 50-year-old man with a history of type 2 diabetes, persistent AFib, coronary artery disease with prior remote PCI, and ischemic cardiomyopathy with HEFRA. His most recent ejection fraction was 38%. He presents to your outpatient clinic. He denies dyspnea on exertion, orthopnea, bendopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, or peripheral edema. His heart rate is irregularly irregular at 112 beats per minute, and his blood pressure is 112 over 67. Routine labs reveal a hemoglobin A1C of 7.7. Which of the following medications should not be used to control this patient's comorbidities? Option A. Metoprolol succinate. Option B, rapamil. Option C, apoglyphosin. Option D, pioglitazem. And option E, both B and D. So that's both rapamil and pioglitazem. And Ala, I would love your help figuring out which meds we should hold for this patient. Great question. Thank you, Hirsch. So I think the correct answer here is E. Both verapamil and pioglitazone should be avoided. Both verapamil and pioglitazone are associated with harm in patients with left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 50%, which is a class 3 for harm. Verapamil is a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. Along with diltiasm, these medications can cause negative enotropic effects through inhibition of calcium influx and may be harmful in the station population. Pioglitazone belongs to a class of diabetic medications known as thiazolidinedione. This class of medications may increase the risk of fluid retention, heart failure, and hospitalization in patients with left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 50%. On the other hand, metoprolol succinate and other evidence-based beta blockers 
have a class one recommendation for patients with reduced ejection fraction of equal to or less than 40% to prevent symptomatic heart failure and reduce mortality. It may additionally help with weight control in this patient with atrial fibrillation and rapid ventricular response. SGLT2 inhibitors, including dapagliflozin, have a class one recommendation for patients with symptomatic chronic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction to reduce hospitalization for heart failure and cardiovascular mortality, irrespective of the presence of type 2 diabetes, which is also a class 1 level of evidence A. They also have a class 1 recommendation in patients with type 2 diabetes and either established cardiovascular disease or at high cardiovascular risk to prevent hospitalization for heart failure. Class 1, level of evidence A. Our patients have asymptomatic or pre-heart failure stage B heart failure with poorly controlled diabetes, and so use of an SGLT2 inhibitor would be appropriate here. So I think the main takeaway is that non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers and thiazolidinediones both have class 3 recommendations for harm in patients with reduced left ventricular systolic dysfunction. Dr. Drasner, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the yeah, thank you, Ala. And uh, this is an important question. We oftentimes think about medications we should use and sometimes gloss over, but there are equally important medications to know about that we shouldn't use, uh, so-called class three recommendations in the guidelines, either for lack of evidence or for even the potential of harm. And classic two that are covered in this question, the verapamil diltiazine calcium channel blockers, the non-dihydropyridines, and then the TZDs, whether it's rosiglitazone or pioglitazone, both of which potentially can worsen heart failure. There are other medications that perhaps even are encountered more commonly, non-steroidals, where people who don't have heart conditions may take a week of it and get away with it with no problem. But patients who have LV dysfunction or, or significant heart failure, that may be in itself enough, a seemingly innocent force of non-steroidals to tip them over to a decompensated state and lead them to a hospitalization. Then there are the interesting patients who come in, you know, with the bag of nutraceuticals that they've been given. Some patients taking hormone replacements, testosterone, even though they don't have an indication. And those are other therapies to look at and counsel your patients on either the potential for harm or for the lack of benefit of those. Parenthetically, you know, I oftentimes wonder how the nutraceutical industry is in great. I have patients, it's hard to get them to take the evidence-based medicines, but they will take these 10 other medications they get from the health store, so to speak. And they'll swear they'll take those even though they're expensive and I can't get them to take the GDMT that has been well-proven. I wish I understood how they were so effective at marketing some of these agents. And then lastly, another related issue here is the beta blocker. In this case, I believe it's metoprolol succinate. And you have to be careful about which beta blockers in the guidelines we specifically call out evidence-based beta blockers. And so had that been metoprolol tartrate, that would not be an appropriate choice. And in clinical practice, patients showing up on a tenolol is not at all uncommon. And you want to switch them off of that to an evidence-based beta blocker in the setting of heart failure-reduced ejection fractions. Again, it's important to know the medications that are indicated, but it's also important to know which ones aren't that are either not going to benefit your patient, but also potentially can do harm so that you can withdraw them from their therapies. That was a really fascinating discussion. And it's definitely something that I don't really think that much about in terms of when to hold certain meds, even though it's something that we definitely learned in our second year at school. So thank you, Dr. Drasner and Allah, for that wonderful discussion. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here.